Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. In our current series, our teacher, Lyric Fesco, is exploring the book of Acts. We hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, so uh, I'm sure it's happened uh, uh, to many of you. For me, it seems to have happened uh, uh, just, uh, well, gosh, even a handful of times uh, every year, a couple times already. Uh, most recently, it was on fall break. Uh, we were on the way to the beach, and we stopped uh, somewhere between here and there for, for gas. Uh, and I was, as I was pumping the, the gas into the car, someone came up to me, and they told me the story of how they were stranded, out of gas and out of luck. They pointed to their car. They said, that's my car right over there. I just need a few bucks. I'm just down a few bucks, and if you'd loan me some, uh, I'd, I'd be most grateful. Uh, or let me have some, he said. Uh, I, I swear I don't ever do this, he says, but I've lost my wallet and I'm just 100 miles from home and now I need a few bucks to get there. Now, full disclosure, whenever I'm approached uh, like this, and I guess it happens, it seems to happen at least uh, two, three, four times a year, just on various occasions where someone comes up and asks for, for money for whatever reason, there are occasions where I do help the person out. Okay, sometimes I, I don't help the person out because quite frankly, I don't have the cash on me. I seldom have cash in my wallet, but, but, uh, but cash aside, there are times when I elect to help the person and there are times when I elect not to help the person. How many of you have all been in a similar circumstance where someone has come up to you asking for money? Now, how, of those people that raised their hands, how many of you every single time without fail, no matter what, give money every single time? Okay, see, there is, there is a certain limit there is a certain limit, right? And uh, what is that, that certain limit? Is, what is the determining factor whether or not you'll help a stranger when they ask for cash? What, what is it that makes you say yes or no? Well, I've been asked for cash for food or for gas. It's interesting when you say, okay, pull up to the station and pump in 15 bucks and they refuse because they want the cash. So what are you trying to determine in that moment? What? Are they, what? Truthfulness. You're trying to determine truthfulness. That is the single biggest determining factor on whether or not, I dare say, any of you would give someone money out of your pocket, whether you believe them to be telling the truth. Now, I'm not going to sit here and try and go through what all the various criteria uh, are for, for, for determining truth, but if you knew, if you had a measure, if you had a means of determining truth, and you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever the person was telling you was absolutely true, I dare say you'd be inclined to give them money. On the other hand, if you knew without a shadow of a doubt that that person was lying to you, I think you dare, I dare say none of you would want to give money if you knew that person was, was lying to you, okay? If you, if, you're, if you believe someone, if you believe someone, you're willing to make an investment in them. If you believe they're, they're not telling the truth, you're likely not willing to make an investment in, in them. Whether we're talking about money or time or, or anything else, okay? Now, there's an issue in the Bible that we're going to look at today, and it does come down to an issue of credibility, believability, okay? And what's the credibility that I'm talking about? As we open up the New Testament, we have the gospel accounts. And in those gospel accounts, we read about Jesus. We read about his disciples and his mother, the soldiers who, who interacted with his disciples, the Pharisees and, and the officials who, who doubted him and ultimately had him crucified, uh, the sick that he healed, the, the sinners he gave salvation to. So, so as we leave the gospel accounts, all right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who is it that writes the majority of the text that remains in the New Testament outside of the gospels? Who is it? It's the Apostle Paul. Now, maybe you've never thought uh, about this, or maybe it's never bothered you, but why did God choose someone like Paul 
to be the chief author of the New Testament. All right, why not one of the original apostles? Uh, does Paul have the credentials and the cred- cred- uh, credibility? Is he believable? Why is Paul the guy who ends up writing most of the New Testament? Now, I don't know how you feel about engaging with uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, but, but I do enjoy talking to them. I really do. Uh, it's been a while since I've, they've, they've knocked on my door for whatever reason. I've had numerous conversations with them, but particularly when I was in college, it seemed to, I don't know if maybe because of the, this particular school I went to, it was just a, a hotbed of, of just various cultures and different uh, beliefs. Uh, and so I, I love talking to them. I'm equally fascinated by people of the Mormon religion. And uh, what I find so fascinating about the Mormon folks is that they really are very good people. They're very good people, and I often wonder how it is that, that they could be so good, yet they are not with the Holy Spirit, as, as we would define uh, uh, Christians, as we would say, you have to be Christian, you have to be followers of Christ to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So how is it that someone who, by that metric, is not filled with the Holy Spirit, yet how are they able to be so good, such upstanding citizens, never in trouble, right? But anyway, if you've ever had the occasion to study the makings of other religions, uh, like, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, you discover their religion is based upon God's revelation. God's revelation, I use that in quotes, to an individual. For the Jehovah's Witnesses, it was a guy by the name of Charles Russell. And for the Mormons, another guy named Joseph Smith. Each of these guys, both these guys, claim to have received special revelation from God. And based on the revelations, they each started now their own religion. All right. Now, I don't think it's a stretch to say that I don't believe any of you here are Mormon today. I'm not going to ask you to show me your hands if you are, uh, or a Jehovah's Witness. And I would say the reason that you are not Mormon, or the reason you are not Jehovah's Witness, uh, or, or part of those groups of people, is because it comes down to a matter of belief. All right. You don't believe the claims that they make, so therefore you are not one of those. All right. And this was something I love to challenge the Jehovah's Witnesses on. I would just simply ask him, why Charles Russell? Why him? Why Charles Russell? Why did God reveal something special to him that wasn't revealed to anybody else? Why him? All right? And, and uh, aside from religions like Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, there are a host of other lesser-known cults that start in similar fashion. Someone claims to have had special revelation from God, people buy into it, and just like that, a new religion or a new cult is formed. All right? So, how is Christianity set apart from that? Have you ever thought about that? There are people that would argue that Christianity is no different than than Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, but instead of God revealing himself to Charles Russell or to Joseph Smith, he revealed himself to Paul. So what makes Christianity so special? What is it that gives Paul credibility? Why do we believe Paul? Uh, Why do we include his writings in our Bible, but we don't include the writings of, of Charles Russell or Joseph Smith or Muhammad, for that matter? Okay? And that's what I want to talk about today. So first, first of all, we want to rewind just a little bit in our study on Acts. Uh, Before there was Muhammad, uh, before there was Joseph Smith or Charles Russell, even before Paul, there were guys in the Old Testament, guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and, uh, and any of these Old Testament prophets. Each of those guys had a burden on them. Each of them had a burden on them to, in a sense, justify their calling, to justify their believability. What made them believable? What makes them uh, credible? And if they were going to go on to say, thus saith the Lord, which is what the job of a prophet does, they're to articulate the, the word of God, thus saith the Lord, they had to prove their calling was indeed that of God Almighty. 
Okay, so for instance, if you read Isaiah chapter 6, perhaps one of my all-time favorite chapters in the, in the entire Bible, it's there where we read Isaiah's calling, which begins with, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Now, it's in this passage that Isaiah is giving both reference to outside events that he's talking about that's taking place in the history of Israel, right? By letting us know that Israel was in a state of calamity uh, with the death of their king. Plus, he details vividly how the Lord came to him and called him out to service. He's telling us the time and occasion of his calling. He's establishing credibility. So how do we know that he was telling the truth, right? Uh, there, were simple, there was a simple test in the Old Testament. Uh, if, uh, if the prophecies you uttered were accurate you got to live. <laughs> if they weren't, you died, all right? Now, most people didn't like what Isaiah had to say. In fact, no one liked Isaiah. That was the whole preface to, that, that God gave Isaiah when he first began his ministry. No one's going to like anything you say. You're going to be the worst preacher there ever was because no one's going to listen to anything you say. But my words, my gospel words that I'm giving to you are going to be words of judgment to them. It's going to seal their eyes and, and ears shut, okay? But they didn't like what he had to say, what Isaiah had to say, but it wasn't because it wasn't true. It wasn't because it wasn't true. His prophecies of the suffering of, of Christ almost read as clearly as any of the gospel accounts do, all right? What Isaiah said was true. It was believable, all right? In the New Testament, the apostles, those who walked with Jesus in the flesh, took on the role that the prophets of the Old Testament carried before the arrival of Christ, so, so since the apostles walked and talked with Jesus because they sat under him and were called directly by him and witnessed firsthand all the miracle sermons and acts of Christ, they were able to speak with authority on his behalf, all right? They could very much say, thus saith the Lord. Just like the prophecies of the Old Testament or the prophets of the Old Testament, they announced the revelation of God with nothing less than the authority of God, all right? Now, we covered this earlier on, early on in our study in Acts, but we're going to go back and rewind a little bit to remind ourselves exactly what are the apostles uh, or what are the, what are the uh, uh, credentials or requirements to be called one of the apostles of Christ. So this is Acts 1.21, uh, beginning in verse 21. If you want to turn there, you can follow along or I'll have it up here. Acts 1, beginning in verse 21. Uh, we see 11 prophets devoting themselves to prayer wanting to replace Judas, who had killed himself after his betrayal of Jesus. So let's pick up there. It says this. So one of the men who have accompanied us uh, during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John till the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men shall become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who also was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go uh, to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, so let's see if we can pick apart here the qualifications for an apostle. Let's see how they establish the credibility uh, in their own ranks. First of all, they had to have accompanied Jesus for the entirety of his public ministry. They had a direct and immediate calling from Christ. So calling number one, all right? Second, they had to be a disciple of Christ, all right? So they have direct immediate contact or calling from Christ, had to be a disciple of Christ. Then notice it says in the second part of verse 22, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So he had to be a resurrection, uh, a witness to his resurrection, all right? So there's a debate that goes on in the church to this very day as to whether or not there are apostles in the church today. Most of us would say no, 
because of these very qualifications, there's no one alive today who has had a direct and immediate calling from Christ, nor could anyone alive today say they were a witness to his resurrection, right? So no sooner do we make this argument or do we state those qualifications as to why there aren't apostles today when someone will come out and say, you'll probably guess where I'm going with this, what about Paul? What about Paul? All right, Paul wasn't a disciple of Christ during his ministry, all right? Paul wasn't a witness of the resurrection in the same manner that the other apostles were, okay? So Paul loses out on two of the three credentials to be an apostle. So what Paul does have, and this is perhaps the main reason that Luke wrote the book of Acts to answer this very question, Paul does have a direct and immediate call from Christ, and because of that call, he receives authority as an apostle. Now, circling back to the original debate today, all right? When, when, when someone can say, well, just like Paul, someone could have a direct and immediate call from Christ in a vision or a dream and therefore have the full authority of an apostle. All right, so do, do you see the dilemma here? Do you see the dilemma? Do you see why there, 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 there can be concern over the legitimacy of, of, of Paul's authority uh, or apostolic authority in our Bible? I come in here this morning. I could come in here this morning and tell you I had a dream or I had an encounter with, with, uh, with, with Christ and uh, a light shone down from heaven and telling me I had a full, full authority of an apostle now. Okay, and going forward, I'd like for you to refer to me as the Apostle Lee Eric, okay? Could I have you do that? In fact, I have a book that I'd like to share with you, and I want you to start reading it. And I want you to include it as a part of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Lee Eric. That's how it's going to go from now on, okay? Now... As ridiculous as that sounds, it's not unlike what other religions we've mentioned asks of their followers. It's the very same thing. So, so how is Paul different from that? Because again, a light shone down from heaven on Paul, right? And suddenly he has apostolic authority? Well, not suddenly, not suddenly. How is Paul different? Let's look at the book of Acts, turn over a few pages to the ninth chapter of Acts, beginning in verse one. Acts nine, verse one, says this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So right away we see Luke giving an account of, of who Paul, or, or Saul as he's is called here, who he was exactly. He was already known. He already had a reputation in and among the church as the scourge of the Christian community. He wanted to rid the world of this, this uh, heretical sect that, believed, uh, that, that he believed was undermining Judaism. We talked a little bit about this last week, that early on people didn't separate Judaism with Christianity. You know, it was, it was thought to be the same thing, but, but uh, coming from uh, two different uh, uh, conclusions. Saul, but Saul had been trained in the, in the uh, rabbinic instruction. He had studied under the most well-known rabbinic scholar of his day. He, was call, he called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. It's been said by historians that by the age of 21 that Paul had the equivalent of two PhDs already uh, uh, to his name. By the time he was 21 years old, he was the most educated man in the land. So it was his education and religious instruction that made him all the more zealous uh, to, to rid the world of the men and women that became known as people belonging to the way, Christianity, all right? He was an exterminator of people. So this is why Luke is so detailed about spelling out his calling for us. Here you have this man who, who was exterminating Christians, suddenly becoming the spokesperson for them, right? 
like, like, uh, like it was important to, to give us, uh, uh, Luke thought it was important to give us a, a detailed account of exactly how radical of a conversion that, that took place here. Continuing on verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul sees this, this blinding light, and he falls to the ground, and a voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, whenever you see a repeated name like this in the Bible, it's, or, or a word, repeated word, it's very intentional. It's a literary device that's meant to, to uh, convey emphasis, special emphasis. The only thing we might uh, compare it to today is our use of the middle name, right? So, for instance, when, when we call our children, if Tracy calls one of our children, Jack Edward, what does that mean? It means there's going to be trouble, right? It means there's going to be trouble. Uh, one, one time, Logan, Logan uh, would get in trouble a lot, and he would say, Logan Tice. And so it was over and over and again, Logan Tice, come here. Logan Tice, clean up your room. Logan Tice, do not argue with your mom and your dad. You know, it's very serious when you use that first and the middle name. Well, one time Logan became so exasperated with his brother that he said, Jack Tice. (laughs) (laughs) He got the idea. He just didn't use the right middle name. He used his own middle name. So... So in the Bible, when we see the repeated name like this, it represents seriousness and even familiarity. If you know someone by their, their middle name, there's a degree of familiarity to it, right? I know a lot of you, but I don't know any of your middle names, right? Uh, and, and, and so now if you say, uh, I, uh, Saul, 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 he's conveying that, that, that level of intimacy. I know you. I know everything about you. I know you intimately, and I want your attention now, Saul. Listen up. This is important. Why are you persecuting me, he says, me? Now, here's what's interesting. Paul had never met Jesus before. And, and what does Jesus ask him? Not, why are you persecuting my church? Paul Lim talked about this last week. But he says, why are you persecuting me? He says. Why does he say that? Because the church is the body of Christ. If you attack, if you attack my wife, you attack me. If you attack my children, you attack me, Right? So you attack the body of Christ, you, you attack him. We're, we're united with Christ. You and I, we are united with Christ. So an attack on his people is an attack on him. He takes it very personally. Now, what's interesting is we see the same account of Paul's conversion later on in Acts chapter 26. Okay, almost an identical word-for-word account. It's where Paul is telling his own conversion to King Agrippa. And he gets to the part that he recalled. This is uh, Acts 26, 14. I love this part. He says... This is, what, this is Paul talking now. And when he had fallen uh, to the ground, I heard a voice saying, and we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What in the world does that mean? This is another passage in, in the Bible that if you were just reading through the Bible, you might not stop c- to consider what it's hard for you to kick against the goads, right? So a large part of my job as a parent and any, any parent knows this, a large part of your job is building boundaries for your children. Because if you only let them do the things they want to do, I promise you they would turn out to be terrible human beings, right? Honestly, pick, pick any child celebrity that you want. What happens when you remove all the boundaries from them and suddenly they have money, attention, and no one around them to tell them no? They, they literally self-destruct, okay? So as a parent, you build boundaries, and they hate the boundaries. The kids, they hate the boundaries, but, but they are absolutely good for them. They're absolutely necessary, just this last week, one of my kids was upset that we promoted them to the next level swim team because it means more practices and longer practices. And he flat out said, I don't want to do that, right? And so I explained to him, you know what, buddy? 
sometimes that we, we ask you to do things that are hard. Because if you only did the things that were easy, we wouldn't be preparing you for real life. Because guess what? Ask the Wilhites if life is easy. Ask them. It's not easy. And, and what does God use those moments for? To, to train you, to make you more like Christ, to, to, to make you and shape you into his, his, uh, his character. All right? So that's why life is hard. And that's why we don't want life to be easy for our kids. You want them to experience hardship. You want them to experience difficulty. So what's an ox goad? An ox goad is a boundary. I don't know if any of you have heard R.C. Sproul recall this narrative, but it's so memorable. He says in the ancient world, most of the carts were drawn, that were drawn for labor, labor in the fields were drawn by oxen, right? So the oxen were yoked and fastened to the cart, and sometimes the oxen would act like mules and would become stubborn. All right. When they, when they were prodded to move, their, their rebellious reaction would be to kick their, their back feet up against the cart they were pulling, just like a child kicking against their parents, right? The boundaries they've established for them. I don't like to be told what to do. And so the ox would kick the cart, sometimes hard enough it could damage the cart and sometimes even damage the, the ox themselves, right? So, or oxen themselves. So the farmers who had these stubborn oxen would fight them and they had to devise a method of preventing them from kicking against the cart. So they would put spikes on the, on the cart behind their feet so when they would kick, the spikes would stab the oxen. And these are called ox goads, all right? And so they kick the spikes and do the oxen learn to stop kicking? The smart ones do, right? But just like kids, though you place boundaries around them, and though they sometimes, to their own detriment, are punished for breaching those boundaries, they still persist with their stubborn behavior, even though it's damaging. Uh, ask anybody who's been through any sort of uh, uh, addiction treatment. It's damaging, but you keep, and you, and you continue at it, and you continue running to it. So there are some oxen who, 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 are, not, who are not with it, who, who would kick and hurt themselves and, and still kick and hurt themselves some more. And, and, and often this would get the, the oxen further enraged, that the more they would kick, the more they would get hurt, the more upset they would get, and the harder they would kick. All right? This is not much different than human behavior. You know, what, whatever the case may be, whatever your sin, we, we do the very same thing. We keep returning to it over and over and over again, even though it's bad for it, even though it's terrible for us, even though it's self-destructive for us, we, we keep doing the same thing. And so this is how Jesus is describing Saul's behavior when he's telling that he's kicking against the goads. It's like he's saying, Saul, you stupid ox, is what he's telling him. You go from town to town trying to destroy your church. You're kicking against the ox goad. All you're doing is hurting yourself, Saul. And then he says this in verse 5. So back, this is back to Acts 9, verse 5. And he said, I love this question, Who are you, Lord? <laughs> and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's interesting to me. Why, why does he say, who are you, Lord? It's tricky. Sometimes he uses the word there that, that we have translated as, as Lord. It, it's the, the word is kurios. And sometimes that word is used to mean God. And, and when they translated the Old Testament into, uh, into Greek, they would often use that word kurios as, as uh, synonymous with God. But sometimes that word kurios, it just meant master or, or Lord in the same way that we would have lords or nobles, all right? So which is it that he's using here? Is he saying, who are you God or who are you master? And to that I say, what difference does it make? Put yourself in his shoes. He's knocked off his feet. He's hit with this brilliant white light. Either way, in this moment, he's acknowledging the supremacy of whatever it is that's going on before him. Okay? It's like he's saying, I'm tapping out. Whatever's, whatever's happening, whatever's going on here, I, I bow in obeisance to it. 
okay? Who are you, Lord? I'd say he knows. I'd say he knows at this moment. He knows this is God himself. It is Jesus speaking on behalf of the triune God in this moment. And I find it interesting that it was Paul who wrote in Revelations that whether we want to acknowledge it or not, that whether we want to acknowledge it or not, there's something deep down inside in every last one of us that knows there is a creator. So whatever Saul had suppressed in terms of acknowledging the truth of who Jesus was, it was being squeezed out of him in this moment. Who are you, Lord? All right, let's finish this out and, and answer the question that we began with. What sets Paul apart from anyone else who, who claims to be an apostle? Those that don't have the credentials that the apostles uh, have spelled out in the opening verses of Acts. So let's continue. This is verse 6. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So that's an important distinction, too, that there were witnesses to this event, unlike Mr. Russell or Mr. Smith, perhaps, all right? Although they later amended their story, uh, Mr. Smith in particular. So Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were, were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision in a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man of how much evil he has done at your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry the name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Uh, for I will show him, I get that? Yeah. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Do you hear that? That's really important. That's just a side note there. For, for I will show him how, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Christianity goes hand in hand with suffering. You can't avoid it. You can't sidestep it. It's, part of, it's, it's baked into the experience, okay? So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So there's the difference. Do you see it? Do you see it? When Paul received his call, all right, this is what sets him apart from everyone else, from anyone else who claims to have any sort of apostolic authority or God-given authority. This is what sets Paul apart right here. The difference between Paul and anyone else who claims to have apostolic authority is he received his call uh, and he was sent back to the church in Jerusalem. He was called, he was sent back to the church in Jerusalem and in a sense was confirmed by a group of men about whose apostolic authority there was no question. See that? He was confirmed by the ones who had credibility and apostolic credentials. Jesus sent him back to the church, and Ananias tried to tell him, Lord, do you know what you're doing here? Do you know who this guy is? And the Lord answered him, he's my chosen instrument. He's the one I've picked. So not to belabor the point, but this is, this is why I can't be an apostle. This is why you can't be an apostle. I, I can't claim to be an apostle citing Paul's lack of, of, of apostolic credentials or credentials. Right, Paul didn't have those credentials that the apostles set forth in the opening verses of Act, Acts, but he was called directly by Christ. And then that calling was affirmed by the apostles himself, themselves. That's not to say his authority was derived from the apostles. 
Rather, Christ gave him the authority, and Paul reminds us that often, he reminds us of that often in his letters. His authority was granted to him by Christ, and that authority was then confirmed by the original apostles. No other prophet, quote, or any other religion or cult can claim that sort of confirmation. That's something I sure couldn't do, right? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't come in here claiming that Christ called me. I can claim that, yeah, that Christ called me, but I certainly couldn't claim that I had the confirmation from the, the, the apostles who walked with Christ, who were a witness of his resurrection. That is something that Charles Russell and Joseph Smith, or Muhammad for that matter, cannot claim, or any other leader of any other cult or religion for that matter. That's what sets Paul apart. It, it, was, it was the call that Paul received from Christ himself that was verified by the apostles, and it was that call that he referenced throughout his writings. He continually came back to this moment and talked about his call being chosen of God, commissioned and set apart to participate in the afflictions and humiliations of, of Jesus. Let's, let's stop there and see what questions you may have about any of that. We only got about oh, a couple minutes left anyway. So what questions do you have on that much so far or that much <laughs> to that point? Any questions or comments? Neil. Neil. Two comments. Or is that just peace? <laughs> uh, why is the why is that sentence omitted in the first account in Acts nine? The ox codes. Yeah. Good question. I don't know. It, it, it is maybe uh, we know that Luke hung out with uh, with Paul a lot, and so as as uh, as Paul or excuse me, as Luke is essentially transcribing what Paul is teaching. Okay, that's why, what gives Luke apostolic authority is that he was sort of the right-hand man of, of, uh, of Paul. And so I imagine maybe when he got to this portion of the letter, it's not like now you have a word process so you can go back, well, let's make some modifications. This is several chapters later. Much writing had taken place since then. And who knows, maybe at this point, Paul asked him to, to include that in, in the writing that was uh, earlier omitted. Uh, that's just my best guess. Not sure why it was mentioned in one or the other, but it is as credible because it is within the within the, the canon that we now call the, the Bible. Yeah, Todd. Um, did all the apostles confirm Paul? Well, we know, we know for sure that uh, Peter, James, and John, we have accounts of that in other, in other gospels, or not the other gospels, but the other writings that they, they were confirmed, and even outside history sources would confirm that. Uh, I don't know for sure, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, that we have the, the, the blessing of every single of the other uh, 11. Uh, but I, by and large, I, I think we, we can credibly say because of uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, and even some others that are mentioned throughout the, the rest of his writings that had uh, given him sort of that apostolic blessing. In Galatians, it said they gave me their right hand of fellowship. The right hand, that's a, that's a, a, a bonding gesture, uh, meaning that he is one of us and is every bit of much one of us as, as any of these others. So that's why we can definitively say that he had their blessing. Yeah. No, we, we also asked this. This is something I forgot to ask is that with every account that we've been looking at here, we've, trying to, we've said, what, ask these two questions. What just happened? Well, we talked about what happened. What does this mean for the church today? Now that we've been through this, now we understand the, the writings of, of what is written here in Acts. What does that mean for the church today? How do we apply this teaching to what we, and how we engage as a church today? We've kind of mentioned it a little bit. What do you think? What, is it, what does it mean for the church today? Yeah. Well, there are no apostles today. He confirms it in 1 Corinthians 9 by directly linking them as well, saying, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? Mm -hmm. That's right. The, even in Ephesians, we're told again, I think it's uh, 2.20, if I'm not mistaken, that the, uh, the, the church is built on the foundation 
of the apostles and prophets, okay? And when you build a foundation, do you, how many times do you rebuild the foundation? If you're building a house, how many times do you want to build the foundation? Hopefully just once. <laughs> if you have to rebuild the foundation, something's gone terribly awry. Okay, so if it's a house that's well-constructed, well-built, you build the foundation once and everything else is built on top of that. And so in Ephesians, that's why I think it's plainly, he plainly tells us it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And, and so that seals the deal in terms of new revelation. And really, you know what? That lets us off the hook quite a bit. Because now we no longer have to, to, to try and gauge whether or not is this person speaking with apostolic authority. To that, we just say no, because it was sealed back then. They have the seal. They have the final word. They were given direct and immediate commission by Christ, and anyone beyond that simply does not have it. That's why we can close the canon. That's why we can close the word of God and say, that's it. It's sealed. No more. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. It's the words of the, the, uh, the apostles. Anyone else? Any other comments or, or observations? Yes, Rosemary. I was thinking about Galatians 1, uh, 1 that was preached on June Sundays ago, mm-hmm. and um, how it, it kind of implies differently that, because he was, um, I think that in that, yeah, I think that in that chapter he talks about how am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, mm-hmm. when God reveals his son in me, I did not. Um, question it. He says in that chapter that he didn't go to Jerusalem to find the apostles, but he went off somewhere else. And... That is a, that's a timeline issue, and I, and I love the book of Galatians, because here, here's, what, here's what's being communicated in, 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 uh, in Galatians 1 and even into 2 when he talks about his confrontation with, with Peter. Uh, and, and what that is telling us, what that is telling us there is that, again, he did not receive his authority from the apostles. This is the distinction we're making here. I didn't receive my authority from the apostles. I received my authority from Christ himself. Okay, so even though I went head to head with Peter, he's saying, even though I I, I butted heads with Peter, that should show you that I'm not just out here seeking the approval of man. I got my approval from God. And they, and thus, even in that confrontation, and at that point, we were then able to to, uh, 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 to find, I guess, common ground is the, is the, is the, the ending of, of that, that, hey, that even though Peter disagreed with me, he, he affirmed me later. He affirmed me and my apostolic authority, okay? And so uh, in terms of the timeline, yes, it's believed that, that, uh, that Peter didn't immediately maybe go, or that Paul didn't immediately go to, to Jerusalem, but then he then spent some time off and away doing what? What's the presumption there? That he was learning from Christ himself, everything that he needed to know to be an apostle, and then came back and was confirmed uh, by the, the apostles themselves. So that's why we say that Paul received his authority from Christ, not from the apostles. It's confirmed by the apostles, but his authority came from Christ. Make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. That's our cue. Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week.